Some years ago, a dear friend of mine was sitting in my dining room with me sharing dinner with me. It was, in fact, my wife's chicken soup. I remember it fondly because that chicken soup is to die for. I married her for it. And this person was a prominent player uh, in the prayer and and, uh, citywide mobilization movements, both domestically and internationally, and in certain quarters, a very well-known author. And he told me that he was rethinking his ministry and asked me what he thought the single most important message that the church needed to hear. And I didn't hesitate. I said, a message of hope. I was finishing my doctoral dissertation at the time, and and I was filled up with stories of revival, and particularly a certain hope, a certain theology of hope that drove the Protestant church for nearly 150 years. And during that 150 years, this theology spawned hundreds of revivals and three massive international awakenings in the modern missionary movement. It spurned and spawned, excuse me, the abolition of slavery, for example, and other, uh, other social movements of the, of, the, of the era. And it really led uh, largely to the transformation of American culture and even its democracy. A message of hope, I said. My friend just stared at me for a moment as if he was struck with a brand new thought. And I don't know if it was me or my wife's chicken soup or the confirmation of others, but my friend, within a matter of months, had changed the trajectory of his ministry to order his ministry to send out messengers of hope throughout the globe. And everyone in this room should leave church this morning as a messenger of hope. It's who we are. It is, in fact, the message of the kingdom. And we in this room should be the representatives of Christ as as messengers of hope, at least throughout the city of Albany, if not beyond, and even to the ends of the earth. Hope gives life. Hopelessness is a killer, literally a killer. The Navy knows, for example, that survival rates among shipwrecked sailors diminishes rapidly when hope is lost, hope of of recovery is lost. Sailors who are out on the waves, having been shipwrecked, alone, marooned on these rafts, if they lose hope, they just simply give up and die. The same is true for hikers lost in the wilderness or perhaps mountain climbers who are stranded on on some cliff somewhere. They give up hope. Their chances of survival are dim. And of course, the stories of POWs, same story. So hope is the fuel that feeds the will to live. Hope is the fuel that feeds the will to live. And hopelessness is a killer. Now look at the rates of suicide in the country today. They're reaching all-time highs. And what is most alarming are the suicide rates among children as young as 11 and 12. They are at historic levels. There is a serious virus called hopelessness 
unleashed within our youth. But why, on the other hand, is hope so powerful? Well, psychologists at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London studied women with early-stage breast cancer and found that the risk of reoccurrence or death increased significantly among those who lacked hope. And why? Well, very practically speaking, hopeful people were inclined to manage their illness by themselves, that is, to take control of the management of their, of their condition. Instead of farming it out, instead of letting others outside of the family or outside of themselves make decisions for them. And they often chose the most aggressive treatments. They took the risks that hope brought with it. And when hopeful people, quote, envisioned the light at the end of the tunnel, unquote, it gave them strength, even through very, very difficult days. But let's turn our attention to the language of hope defined in the Bible. Hebrew has more than a half dozen words for hope. But two of them seem to frame what we think about hope from the Old Testament. That is, they, um, they're, they're essentially the, the main ideas behind Old Testament hope that we talk about today. This hope that feeds then the understanding of the New Testament. And the two Hebrew words are tikva and yakal. Now the word tikva, for example, comes from the word kava, whose root meaning is a cord or a rope. Now some of you might be builders in this room today, or you may be handymen. You use plumb lines, don't you, or snap lines, and some of you every day. The root of kava can describe such a line as that, a twisted or, or, or entwined rope. Now, before we had transits, surveyors had transits then to look through, and guys on, with poles, you know, to stand on highways, etc., and do surveys. Well, measuring lines would be drawn out to, to then measure a piece of property, for example, or the, the boundaries of a, of a house that one is building. So someone would tell you, here, take the end of this cord and walk out until we've come to 100 cubits. I'll count off 100 cubits. And when you go out 100 cubits, I'll yell stop and make a mark there. And then I'll come to you and then we'll go in another direction. In other words, hope says that I can hold the line that measures what is mine. Do you, see, do you hear it? I can hold the line that measures what is mine. Hope is holding the line while seeing the end. There is something I've got and I can see the end of it. This is not a whim. This is not a vaporous longing. This is a concrete thing. I hold a line that measures what is mine. Now, the end might be a little bit fuzzy. You know, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we may see through a glass darkly. We can't see it fully in, in, in all its colors, etc. But through the eyes of faith, we can make out the goal of our hope. And we're tied to it 
like a cord is tied to it. And it gives us strength to wait patiently and to hold firmly and relentlessly even though we face difficult times. How can you be so joyful in the midst of this trial, you might be asked. Because you're holding on to this thing that you know that God has given you. This is why hope ultimately is related to the words like trust or faith. These are often used interchangeably. For example, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. These aren't vaporous whims. These aren't clouds that mist by. This is something solid. Hope is. There's a certainty in it. And that certainty gives us courage. It gives us patience. It gives us joy. It gives us hope. Now think of hope like pulling in a fish. Some of you are fishermen. Talk about patience, right? My sons are fishermen. I don't know where they got it from. I am not a fisherman. I don't have the patience for it. But they are, they are fishermen. They are fly fishermen. They go out into the rivers of New England, for example. You cast a line with the expectation of catching something, and finally it hooks something in the mouth. And even before that, that fish breaks the surface of the water, even before it breaks the surface of the water, you're envisioning what will soon be in the boat as you're reeling it toward you. And as the, the line is taut, and the bow, the bowing of the, of the rod, that's hope. It's, you've got it. It's yours. But there's a rub. When you look at hope in the Bible, you'll see that hope, a hopeful person is not always promised that they will see the realization of their hope in their lifetime. Let me say it again. When you look at hope in the Bible, the contexts that surround it, you'll see that a hopeful person is not always promised what they will see, that they will see the, the object of their hope in their lifetime. In other words, you are confident of your line reeling in the fish, but you may not be the one who has it for lunch. Now, there are accounts in the Bible, of course there, there are, of people who cry out to God, confident in hope that the Lord is going to answer, and the Lord answers rather quickly. There are healings of the Lord Jesus, where people cry out to him. There are demoniacs. But many other times, like in the Messianic Psalms or the prophets, the person full of hope does not expect to live to see the realization of their hope. Take Moses, for example. God raised him up for a single hope. And that hope is that the people of Israel would enter the promised land. But Moses, you know, never realized that hope. He never stepped foot into the promised land. Now, he could see it in his mind's eye from a distance, I'm sure. And then in the last days of his life, he could then climb a mountain, Mount 
Pisgah on the crest of Nebo, and he could vaguely then peruse the promised land from such a height. But he never walked into it. And do you remember the old verse of the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer? Some people sing this verse and they don't even understand what they're singing. But it goes, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, may I thy consolation share till from Mount Pisgah's lofty heights I view my home and take my flight. How many of you really understood what, was, what you were singing when you sang that? What the, what the author is saying, what the hymnist is saying, is that prayer is the place like Moses uh, rose to. And from that, the heights of prayer, like from the, the heights of Nebo and Pisgah, I can view the promise that God has given me, even though I know that I'll never see it in my lifetime until I take wings and fly home to, to see him face to face. So when you come together in your prayer meetings, you are climbing to heights where you can see the objects of your hope and your longing. So prayer is like that. Remember Martin Luther King, I have a dream. I may not get there with you, he said. But mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Tell me, are you willing to pray a prayer that you will never see the answer to in your lifetime? Would you be satisfied with a confident hope with regard to your friends, your family, your grandchildren that you will never see in your lifetime? I don't know whether I told you about my my great-grandfather when I was here last, or maybe a couple times ago. But my great-grandfather was a Norwegian man, simple man, carpenter, laborer. But you can go to his home today, and I have gone to his home in a place called Vrangen, Norway, outside of Arendal, on a little fjord. And you can go into the parlor, and you can see places in the wooden pine floors where his knees carved out ruts where he prayed. And from the time he, my grandmother was 12 years old, he began praying every night with her for her husband, her children, and her grandchildren. That was over 100 years ago that my great-grandfather ascended to the heights of Pisgah and viewed his legacy from afar, the hope of his prayers, and he saw me in his prayers, but never met me. And I look forward to the moment when he does. Do you have hope for your children, your grandchildren? We were at dinner last night, and my granddaughter, she's two years old, FaceTimed me during dinner. I introduced her to everyone at the table, and I was so proud of her. But I, I begin calculating, where will I be when she reaches 20 or 25 or 26 or 28? Where will I even attend her wedding? Will I ever see her children or her grandchildren? 
But Lord, am I willing to pray a blessing over her, to realize a hope within her, prayers that I will never see the answer to? My friends, there are countries and places all over the earth that have been prayed for for the last 300 years, and only now we are seeing the realization of hundreds of years of prayer. Men and women who longed for the salvation of places in China, of Indonesia, places in, Af in Africa and in South America, who are only now seeing the realization of their prayers. One of the most famous examples of this hope begins at the very part of uh, very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham. Well, it's way back in Genesis chapter 11, you remember. It starts there. But Abraham's story is the beginning of what we consider biblical hope. Abraham's story, well, he's going to be the father of Israel. He's going to be the father of many nations. He's going to be the one through whom the salvation of the world would come. And though this was seemingly impossible to Abraham, well, Abraham held on to this court, held on to this hope and suffered through many things, many trials, holding on to this promise. It was a messy adventure. How many of you believe that holding on to hope can be a messy adventure? In Romans chapter 4, verse 18, we're told that against all hope, Abraham in hope believed so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so your offspring shall be. Because of God's miraculous work, Abraham could say, I hold the line that measures what is mine. Mine is the nations of the earth, the blessing of the nations of the earth. I don't deserve it, but I cling to it. And this cord of hope leads me straight to the blessing of the nations, straight to the Savior of the world. But again, like Moses, Abraham never saw the greatness of his legacy. Not in this life. So when Abraham went fishing with God, God imparted to him a miraculous catch that would bless the world, a promise that Abraham could only begin to see as it began to emerge from the waters of God's revelation. And yet... Someone else ate that fish for lunch. And I'm sure Abraham would be pleased as punch to know that it was so. Abraham never tasted. He never saw his own people. He never saw his own people face to face. He never walked the streets of, that, of the cities that were promised to him. He never plucked olives or grapes in the nation of Israel, except by faith, Hebrews 11. Again, would you be satisfied with such a hope? Would you live courageously, faithfully, joyfully, take risks, living by faith because of such a hope? Well, dwell with me for a moment on Abraham's story. If you read Abraham's story, it's hard not to be impressed with his faith. He was originally called Abram, he, had, he was from a pagan place, a pagan city, Ur of the Chaldean. And he was on pagan land, right? When God called him, he had no previous knowledge of God. He left his homeland because God said so. He didn't know this God before, but God said so, and he left his homeland. 
He left his family, his culture. He left to become a nomad. God told him to leave, and God, he obeyed because God was going to make of him a great nation and to bless the peoples of the earth through him. Abram obeyed. But we're also impressed, again, with the messy part of Abram's humanity. Abram delayed his initial obedience. He lied when he got into trouble because he didn't believe God was big enough to protect him and his wife from a lecherous ruler who wanted his wife. And he tried to, get, he tried to help God fulfill his promise. Abraham had no children. He had a wife who could not bear children. So how could this hope be realized? Well, he, he tried to help God with this hope. And again, he didn't understand that the promise given to him from God was big enough to deliver the earth to him, and God was big enough to do it all. So Abraham thought he could help, right? According to the ancient texts discovered among the Chaldeans, and the so-called Newsy documents as well, we've learned that a barren wife in the days of Abram could secure an heir either of three ways. Number one, her husband could adopt his next of kin. In Abraham's case, his nephew was Lot. There seems to be an expectation that Lot was going to be his heir. But uh, Lot got greedy. Lot got messed up with Abram, and they split. And in Genesis 13, Lot and his men chose the rich plains of Jordan and ended up in Sodom, a doomed city. And when Abram was found looking toward the plains of Jordan and despondent over the loss of his heir, Lot, God told Abram to lift up his head and to look around because the hope wasn't dead. And God reiterated his promise that Abram's descendants would be like the dust of the earth, innumerably great. Well, secondly... You could do an heir, you could provide an heir by, through a servant, by adopting a servant. Well, after Lot left Abram, Abram thought that the next logical option was, well, Eliezer, his servant that he picked up in Damascus. But God said, no, Abram would have a son from his own body. And again, the hope isn't dead. Abraham then or God took Abram out into the night, told him to look up into the heavens to see the stars, and told him that his family would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Don't despair, Abram. But once his wife, Sarai, overheard this, well, she believed that the son that was going to be born to Abraham, well, needed to put into play the third option, and that is to find a legal proxy for a barren woman. A surrogate who would be found, a servant in the household, a servant that would then bear, the, bear for her mistress the child that she could not bear with her husband. So Sarai, now in her 70s, offered Abram, the maidservant, Hagar, she's my proxy, take her, a completely legal option in the day prior to any Israel, prior to any law of God, a maidservant would bear the child for the master, forfeit the child to her mistress, and the child would become a legal offspring of the lady of the estate. 
and an inheritor than an heir of the estate. Same scenario is found in Genesis 30 with Rachel, the wife of Jacob, who is barren and frustrated. Again, Abram and Sarai are just trying to help God in the realization of their hope. And every time God swears to fulfill his hope to Abram, Abram begins to help God. And each of Abram's solutions gets messier and messier, and we're still living with the mess today. But who can blame Abram? For Abram, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is Sarah's barrenness, and he doesn't think God is big enough to deliver on his hope. You know how you can help Abram? Essentially, God is saying, don't help. Trust and be patient. These are the indispensable ingredients of hope. And against all hope, Abraham, in hope, would finally believe. How did God convince him? Well, it's through one of the weirdest scenes in all of the Bible. And there's a punchline coming to all this. And unless you understand the language of the ancients, you'll misunderstand what is about to be read. But I want to read it with you and then go th- just make a couple of points. And then we'll be done. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So I'm the object, really, of your hope. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? This is after Lot has left. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can indeed count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God refined and fanned into flame once more Abram's hope. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In verse 7, He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Yes, I believe God, but how can I know that you're big enough to do it? In Mark chapter 9, Jesus met a man with a demon-possessed boy. Remember this? And the father pleaded with Jesus to help the boy, and Jesus responded, everything is possible for him who believes. And the boy's father shot back, Lord, yeah, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And how many in this room would just, yeah, I know the hope is mine, but how can I really know that God is big enough to deliver on it? Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Our hope is only as strong as our trust in God. Verse 9, to answer Abram's question, he orchestrates a mysterious drama. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, 
each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon, a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with, a, with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not been yet measured in full. And then the sun... The sun had set and darkness had fallen, and a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, Your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenazites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanite, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, what in the world did we just read? What in the world is going on? This was how God said to Abram, you can know that I'm big enough. Well, verse 18 holds the key. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. A covenant is a contract, an agreement made in solemn vow, with solemn vows. And in the Hebrew, to make a covenant is literally karat berith, literally to cut a covenant. And it's a reflection of cultures much older than Israel. There is no Israel yet. So only Abram is there, called by God out of a pagan land, and God is speaking to him in language, in a language that Abram can understand. But what is this language? Well, in ancient covenant ceremonies, there is both the recitation of a benediction that is outlining everything you get if you're obedient to the, to the agreement, plus the malediction, that is, all the curses that, that would come to you if you fail to obey. And the curse of the covenant is represented by the cutting of of, of an animal. There's a cutting that takes place. For example, I read the account of an ancient king who ruled over a very large and powerful land, and his armies marched to the outside of this small city. The powerful king rode into this city, and he demanded that the city become his vassal, his subject, that the city would become subject to him and, and the part of the greater empire that he ruled. The alternative, then, that w- was that the powerful king uh, promised that the city would be destroyed and everyone in it if they did not submit. So here's the, here's the one, here's the good news, here's the bad news. Which one would you choose? Well, the good news is that the king chose to obey, to submit. So the king of the small city agreed to be the vassal, the subject to the larger king. A covenant ceremony was created to celebrate this and to announce it to the entire city. And the small city to agreed to pay a portion of the crops every year and to come to aid to the aid of that that uh, that 
that uh, uh, hit the king's army should the king go to war. And at the height of the ceremony then, the king took a goat and cut off its head and said, this is the head of the king, of your king, should this covenant not be ratified, should not be obeyed. So what God is saying is that there is a curse of the covenant that should you disobey, I'm giving you a hope, Israel. I'm giving you a hope, Abram. And I'm cutting a ceremony, but I'm cutting a covenant with you. And there's curses and blessings in this covenant. But God says there's, a, there's something that you didn't bargain for. And that is in the midst of this covenant cutting ceremony, I'm going to walk through these animals myself. This is, this is, this is not what covenant ceremonies did. Two kings would go down there, two making agreements with one another. And the cutting ceremony represented the failure of the covenant. But by God taking, him, taking the form of a smoking fire pot and going through the animals himself, he's forswearing to Abram that I will bear unto myself the curse of the covenant rather than see this promise to you die. I will take upon myself the entirety of the curse rather than see this covenant perish. And of course he did so, did he not? In the person of Jesus Christ. The promise to Abram, the hope of the ages, of the kingdom to come, was taken on and borne by the Lord himself. He is big enough to do it. The reason why we can hope in God and the reason why we must hope in God and all hope begins with the greatness of God is that there is a place in our hoping that only he can fill. I was on the Baltimore-Washington Parkway when I was a young man helping my father move from Washington, D.C. to the New York metropolitan area. It was about 12 o'clock in the morning, 1 o'clock in the morning. The sky was black. It was a cloudless night. It seemed like the headlights of our car could only go 20 or 30 feet. We were traveling at highway speeds when suddenly we came upon we came upon debris everywhere. There wasn't another car going in any direction, but we came upon this de debris and we saw what, what came to be a, a wreck. It was a head-on collision that had happened just moments before we came upon it. The wrecks were still smoldering. We didn't know what to do. We, uh, we pulled over. Uh, my father jumped out. I jumped out. I ran to one of the cars, and the car was empty, and I looked to the side of the car, and in the road lay a body, lay a man, and he was moving his lips, so he was still alive. My father ran to the other car, but the engine of the car was in the driver's lap, and the driver was obviously in the last throes of life. 
And I knelt down to this man. He was covered with glass. He was covered with debris. And I began wiping his face and wiping his body. And I ran back to the, to the, to the van. I covered him with a, with a blanket. And I knelt down beside him. I began speaking to him. This man, his life depended on me at that moment. He was helpless in his state, paralyzed, having emerged from a catastrophic wreck, and he could not help himself. He would die if left to his own devices. My friends, we have to come to the place where we know that in life we have survived for a moment a catastrophic wreck in history the fall, the sinfulness of humankind. And we are paralyzed in the highway of destiny, unable to help ourselves unless God is big enough to rescue us. Unless God is willing to take upon himself the burden of your salvation that he might secure for you your hope. God has forsworn the curse of the covenant that your hope might be certain. He has died for you. How many of you feel today that you're in a wreck? That your family condition, we were in the restaurant yesterday, we spoke to a waitress. How can we pray for you? As soon as we asked that question, she broke into tears began telling us the hardship of her life. Many of you might be in the same situation, knowing that there is no way to help yourself other than to hope in Christ. And Christ has forsworn the curse of the covenant that you might be saved, that your hope is certain, that as you hold on to that string of hope that leads to the measurement of your blessing, there is certainty in it all. Would you rise with me to pray? Oh, Father in heaven, we know that hope brings life and hopelessness the end of hopelessness is death. We pray in this service this morning that we will acknowledge that Christ is in fact the focus of our hope, that all hope starts with you forswearing upon yourself the curse of the earth, that, our, that the kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our strength, O oh God. This is our confidence. And this morning, O oh Lord, we surrender to you. We ask that as we begin this week of speaking of hope, the Lord will begin here with the grace of Christ. Lord, hear our prayer. And we surrender anew. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Let's sing together.